This is Generation Justice, a multimedia movement that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Polly Dinekla. And I'm Matthew Brown. Tonight, we bring you Free Press's 100 Days of Disruption campaign. Free Press is the national media and communications advocacy group that fights for everyone's right to connect and communicate. We are joined by Craig Aaron, president and CEO, as well as Candace Clement, campaign director for Free Press, who will tell us more about their campaign. Tonight, you'll also hear from Peter Simonson, executive director for the ACLU of New Mexico, to discuss the Constitution and the use and misuse of the power of free speech in America. We want to spend this evening not only looking at the issues before us, but also celebrating the resistance that is alive in our country. During such tumultuous times, it's always valuable to take a step back and remember that the one commonality that unites us all is a love for music. Now, with that being said, here's Knowledge of Self by Black Star. So many MCs focusing on black people extermination. We keep in balance with that knowledge of self determination. It's hot, we be blowing the spots with conversations. Come on, let's smooth it out like soul sensation. We in the house like Japanese in Japan or Koreans in Korea. Had to fill in free Mumia with the Kuji Chagalia true. Singing and swinging and writing this fighting. GJ fellow Katery Zuni had the opportunity to sit down and speak with Craig Aaron, the president and CEO of Free Press, as well as campaign director. Candace Clement on the 100 Days of Disruption. This is in direct relation to the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Free Press is a D.C.-based national advocacy organization that fights for our rights to connect and communicate. Free Press fights to save the free and open internet, curb runaway media consolidation, protect press freedom, and ensure diverse voices are represented in our media. Now here is Kateri Zuni with Craig Aaron. My name is Kateri Zuni with Generation Justice, and I am speaking with Craig Aaron. Craig is the president and CEO of Free Press and the Free Press Action Fund. He's been a leader in major campaigns to safeguard issues like net neutrality, stopping media mergers, opposing unchecked surveillance, defunding public media, and sustaining quality journalism. Craig Aaron, welcome to Generation Justice. Thanks so much for for having me. Uh, Glad to be with you today. And for those who might not be familiar, can you describe the work of Free Press? At at Free Press, we like to say we fight for your rights to connect and communicate. And our mission all along has been to bring the public into the debates that are happening in Washington and elsewhere over the future of media, the future of the Internet. Uh, Because these have been debates that for most of our history, the public has been completely excluded. Uh, So what we try to do is pay close attention to what's happening in the halls of power, places like the Federal Communications Commission, Congress, and really alert folks when their attention and activism and awareness uh, could make a real difference. And and we do that through um, organizing and advocacy online and off, trying to bring the voices that have been traditionally excluded from these debates into these debates, and really providing a counterweight to the big, powerful corporations and others who've dominated these conversations for too long. Free Press, in reality, is really two organizations. Uh, Free Press, the 501c3 nonprofit organization, and the Action Fund, which allows us to do more direct advocacy. Most of our 
our action fund work, which is under our 501c4, is really designed to be able to directly lobby uh, and advocate on specific pieces of legislation with a traditional nonprofit can't do or can't do as much of. So we do, uh, you know, directly lobby and try to influence policy decisions, and we do that through our our action fund, uh, our action fund side. Great. And can you tell me a little bit about some of the wins uh, in media and tech policy that Free Press has been the center of? You know, I think probably our most notable victory uh, and one we've been working on for a lot of the last 10 years was around the issue of network neutrality or net neutrality. Mm -hmm. This is the basic idea that when you go online, you should be able to go wherever you want, do whatever you want, download whatever you want. And it's not up to your phone or cable company to decide which websites are going to work and which won't. And uh, this has been under attack in Washington uh, for a long time, for more than a decade. It's still under attack uh, and will be coming back in the Trump administration. Uh, but in 2015, we had a huge victory in, in which the Federal Communications Commission, after massive pressure from the public, more than 4 million people weighing in at the agency, actually passed strong net neutrality rules and restored the agency's authority to step in and safeguard the public. So that, that was really a signature win for us. We've, you know, uh, intervened successfully to stop mergers. Uh, we've, we've lost some of those, too, but we have been able to help disrupt some mega mergers when Comcast tried to merge with Time Warner Cable, when AT&T tried to merge with T-Mobile. Um, we've fought on a, on a whole range of issues around uh, media ownership and trying to maintain limits on how much one company can own. W with somewhat less success, we've worked on a range of issues around surveillance, uh, trying to rein in unchecked spying and surveillance. And there's a whole range of other things we've fought to secure. And, I mean, you've mentioned net neutrality and surveillance, but what are some other specific things within media and tech that are at stake during this administration? Wow, it's really all at stake in some ways. You know, I think this is an administration that from day one, you know, has really declared war on the media. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and people have a lot of reasons to distrust the media. Uh, the media has earned every bit of that. But, uh, you know, this is potentially a really dangerous time when it comes to both press freedom and Internet freedom. I think this is an administration that's showing it's willing to go after journalists, really attempting to devalue journalism. And the type of journalism they're, they're looking ultimately to destroy is not the he said, she said, you know, sort of stenographers that sit in the White House press room. It, it's serious accountability for what this administration is doing. They're going to look to undermine that in whatever ways they can, um, you know, whether that's direct attacks on the press, cracking down on whistleblowers. Um, or, or, you know, simply sort of encouraging uh, fake news and misinformation. I think that's all in play here with this administration. On the Internet side, I think you have an administration, for the most part, that's signaling through its appointments in particular uh, that they're really going to be on the side of unchecked power for big corporations. Um, and so that has us very worried because we see an administration that's committed to defanging agencies like the Federal Communications Commission just at the moment they got rid of their baby teeth. So they're just starting to do the most basic light-touch things to actually stand up for the public. And this administration's priority is to completely dismantle that. So, you know, we're really preparing to confront and resist an agenda that's absolutely designed 
to uh, remove public safeguards, to let big companies do whatever they want, and, you know, we think potentially really damage the free and open Internet uh, and the free press. How is the media, in particular public and independent media, going to be impacted? Uh, I, I think potentially in a lot of ways. I mean, I find myself sometimes in an interesting position uh, because I'm unquestionably a media critic. I think we need to uh, poke and prod and challenge the media to do a better job, to ask hard questions, to hold the powerful accountable. And at the same time, we absolutely am an absolutist when it comes to free speech and press freedom. We have to defend uh, the ability of reporters to do, to do their jobs. Uh, and, and, and I see a lot of that really at risk. Uh, journalists who were swept up uh, in the protests that have been happening here in Washington, arrested, hit in many cases, hit with charges that look could look like 10 years in jail and $25,000 fines. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those charges have been dropped. I mean, we have a larger problem, which is even that the protesters who were swept up, even those who, who, who may have been doing property destruction, uh, hundreds of people who certainly were not doing that were swept up. And the idea that any of those protesters should be facing felony charges is absolutely appalling. Uh, but when it comes to the press, you know, I, I, I think it's something really to pay attention to, the idea that uh, independent folks, people, what I would say, call committing acts of journalism, uh, are being swept up. We've seen this in a lot of social movements, whether that's the folks uh, out at Standing Rock protesting the pipeline, the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter, you know, the folks there who are really there uh, using the tools of the media, live streaming, uh, recording things with their phones, doing interviews who are not part of traditional media organizations are being treated as criminals uh, by law enforcement uh, and by, by prosecutors. Uh, we think that's a tremendous problem. Uh, when it comes to public media, public broadcasting, public radio, uh, the indications are the Trump administration is going to come for their federal funding. Um, which is an absolutely minuscule part of the federal budget, but it keeps a lot of stations, especially in uh, smaller markets and underserved areas, on the air. You know, simply the old rules do not apply. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a journalist, and this applies to NPR and a bunch of other uh, institutions, and what you're spending on your time on is sort of wringing your hands about whether you should describe a, as something as a lie or a falsehood, you're probably doing it wrong. This is the moment that most people who are journalists, this is what you got into journalism to do, to hold the powerful accountable, to expose corruption. And if you're doing something else, if you're just concerned about access, uh, I, I think this is indication that your, 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 your time should be done. Yeah, thank you. I think that's, that's really great advice to heed as somebody coming into journalism now. Um, it is very daunting, but at the same time, this is exactly what I asked for. Tell us about Free Press's 100 Days of Disruption campaign. Sure. Well, you know, like so many folks, we didn't expect to be facing the Trump administration. Um, and the, the, the threat posed on, on so many levels, I think, is, is, is really serious um, to the basic functioning of government. Uh, I think there's real danger to a lot of communities. Uh, immigrant communities, Muslim communities, direct, uh, you know, d direct danger that we've, we've seen already emerge in the first week or so of the administration. And, uh, you know, as an organization, you know, we had to really ask ourselves from day one, how are we going to approach this new administration? So we conceived this idea of 100 days of disruption 
to speak to our members all across the country, the million people who are part of Free Press, to say uh, essentially to them, which, 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 which of you are willing to you know, work with us every day to push back? If you'll sign up for the 100 Days of Disruption campaign, we'll give you something every day that can help disrupt the Trump administration. Some of these are big and obvious things, you know, oppose the, the attorney general, oppose the Supreme Court nominee. Some of them, uh, you know, might not seem so obvious, but they're part of a strategy that says if we can slow this administration down in any way possible, any angle, any corner, any policy that they want to pursue that's dangerous to the public, uh, that's going to help everything. And it's really our commitment to both highlight the ways that folks can do that around issues of journalism and media and technology, but also to stand united with our allies who are working on a, a lot of other and bigger issues and really place ourselves alongside and, and within the emerging social movements that I believe are actually going to be the way we make change in this country. So, so that's what we've tried to do with this campaign is give different specific ways that people can engage every day uh, in, in disrupting and derailing uh, this administration's agenda and in starting to build those broader networks across issues, across organizations that we're going to need uh, to, to really turn things around. The way we did things before didn't work. The election of Donald Trump, the media failure that helped elect Donald Trump uh, is, is part of that strong evidence that what we did before just simply isn't working anymore. We got some questions, you know, what, wh why are you prioritizing this? You know, even a little bit of, you know, let's give, don't we have to give this guy a chance? Uh, but for the most part, you know, largely spurred by the really dangerous actions already taken by this administration, uh, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. And part of the reason we're doing this campaign is to be able to be out there every day saying, here's another thing uh, that's important uh, to, to tell people, you know, there, there are ways you can confront this and make a difference. I think so many people are just overwhelmed by the danger of the Trump administration. You know, mm -hmm. I count myself among them. Uh, I, I, I can get lost in Facebook and get to that point of despair pretty quickly. Um, but the fact is that there still are ways we can throw a wrench in these plans, disrupt them, interrupt them, and I think inspire really unprecedented forms of activism. And that's what we're seeing. Now, free press isn't leading those unprecedented forms of activism. What we're trying to do is support them, hold the media accountable for how they're covering them, and look at the ways you know we need to protect technology so we continue to organize and do things like see a, a, a massive march of you know, five million people all over the country happen with a couple months planning to see 10,000 people marching through the streets of Washington, 5,000 people at 10 different airports, in some cases on literally hours notice. That was all being done using, you know, technology and the Internet. So, you know, this is a really harrowing moment, but it's also an opportunity to build really powerful new alliances and do incredible kinds of activism and to recognize the power of that kind of activism to actually push uh, politicians in Washington to do things much differently. All right. Thank you. And what would you say to somebody who, you know, thinking about things that have already happened, like the Muslim ban, the threat to reproductive rights, what would you say to somebody who just doesn't really understand why it's important to also get behind media and tech issues. 
Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, the important thing to know is just how interconnected they all are. Uh, the media system we have is going to play an incredible role in shaping uh, these debates and even who's in power. And there's no better evidence of that and, frankly, of the media's failure than this last election. Uh, I mean, you had the head of CBS, Les Moonves, talking about how Donald Trump might be bad for the country, but he's good for CBS because their ratings went up and they were able to make more money. Uh, that is, you know, exhibit A in the case for a broken media system. And I think similarly on the technology side, all so much of the amazing organizing that's happened uh, and the connection between organizers, where there might be something happening in Albuquerque, but it turns out there's a similar effort underway in Atlanta or New York or whatever, is made possible because of uh, the Internet uh, mm -hmm. and the ability for people to communicate freely and do their organizing online. Uh, that, that is not guaranteed. We actually have to fight to make sure those tools can be used in that way. And I think to recognize that things like the Internet you know, they can be used to liberate us or they can be used to oppress us. And if we sit out the debates about the structures, about ownership, about these policy decisions that might seem obscure or less important, then the system will be built in a way to serve uh, powerful corporations and those that are already in power. If we engage in these debates, uh, we can create uh, different openings, different opportunities that are part of uh, the larger social change that we need. Craig, is there anything else that you would like to share? Come join us and participate in this campaign. Um, sign up, get the emails, take action, and send your ideas and feedback. Let us know what we should be paying attention to. Let us know what you people out there see or happening. You know, really, I would just say this is not a moment to retreat. This is not a moment to turn off the news. And to people who've never been politically active before, they're waking up right now, and that is a real opportunity um, to, you know, not only hold off the disastrous policies of Donald Trump, um, but to build something much better. Thank you so much. And one more time, uh, where can people go to get involved with the 100 Days of Disruption? Yeah, the best place to go is freepress.net. Um, you'll see opportunities there to sign up. Um, and uh, if you do so, we'll send you something every day for 100 days. Uh, and uh, we, we definitely urge you to stick around after that as well, because uh, this is actually going to be a long-term fight. But all the information is at freepress.net. Thank you so much, Craig, for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you, Free Press, for all of the wonderful work that you do. Um, I know that this is exactly what we need um, in the coming days. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Craig, for joining us. A longer version of this interview can be found on our website, generationjustice.org. Now, let's rejoin Kateri Zuni with Candice Clement, Campaign Director for Free Press. She joins us to help us learn more about the 100 Days of Disruption campaign. My name is Kateri Zuni, and I am speaking with Candice Clement, Campaign Director for Free Press. Candace directs Free Press's campaigns to save the free and open internet, curb runaway media consolidation, protect press freedom, and ensure diverse voices are represented in our media. 
She's a former board president of Girls Rock Campaign Boston. And before joining Free Press, Candace worked with Community Radio, just like here at Generation Justice. She holds a BA in American Studies from Smith College with a concentration in media and culture. Candace, welcome to Generation Justice. Can you tell us about your position at Free Press? I work at Free Press to direct all of our campaigns, and we work on a bunch of different issues, ranging from making sure that everybody has access to the Internet and that when they get online, they're able to go to the websites that they want to see, to pushing back against consolidation in the media and fighting for quality journalism. Wonderful. Thank you so much. For this program and others to follow here at Generation Justice, we were really inspired by Free Press's 100 Days of Disruption campaign. Can you describe that campaign for us and give us the big picture and also just break it down? So with the 100 Days of Disruption campaign, we were really looking for a way to give folks a chance to fight back uh, every day. I think there's there's been a lot of outrage in the aftermath of this election, which, you know, I think is a good thing. It's activating a lot of new activists and people who've never really considered themselves to be activists before, which is great. But there's also been a lot of folks talking about how overwhelming it feels. So with the 100 Days of Disruption, we were hoping to create a sort of easy way to give folks, here's a single thing that you can do every day to fight back on these attacks to our civil liberties. But we also recognize this as a moment for movements for social justice, movements for equality, movements for racial equity in this country to come together and actually work in solidarity. So that's part of what we're trying to do with this campaign as well. Great. Thank you. And what are the important components of a campaign like this? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, how does it operate? How, how are you getting that message out there? Yeah. Um, well, if folks want to join the campaign, they can sign up on our website. Um, and what we do is we email people every single day um, with something that they can do to fight back on these attacks on our civil liberties. Um, we are trying to provide some variety in terms of what those asks are um, so that, you know, every single day isn't show up in the streets or make a phone call um, and give folks a, a range of things to do. So certainly those things, um, things like signing petitions and stuff like that, but also things like reading, you know, reading long form articles or, or checking out books that sort of give a historical perspective um, and contextualize the current moment. Um, just asking folks to you know, sharing some of the things that inspire us after a week where we saw a lot of things that we really value be attacked. Um, just sharing, these are the things that help keep us going. You know, these are the places that we draw inspiration. You know, where are places that you draw inspiration? And it was really amazing to see people responding to that in social media and sharing, you know, examples of songs or videos or articles that they had read that really helped keep them going. So we're trying to focus on having a range of different activities because not everybody can do every single thing and, you know, and that's okay. What do you hope to accomplish with the campaign? What is the end goal? I think... It's really important to be pushing back in this moment, and it's certainly challenging, right, when you are facing um, uh, multiple branches of government that aren't necessarily going to work in your favor. But I think one of the things that we're trying to accomplish is really helping to activate uh, people who haven't necessarily been activated before and expose folks to, you know, maybe some different issues that they weren't necessarily thinking about before. Um, I would really love to see us ultimately 
find a way to continue this that goes from, you know, sort of transitioning this, what often can feel like a one-way conversation um, where we're sending out stuff to folks and, and asking them to take action to something that can allow people to talk more to each other because there's this really intense desire for community um, and for people to be able to connect with each other locally. And another amazing thing that we've seen is that, you know, people are just, they're just doing things. Like people are, you're seeing so many of these things, right? Like on Facebook, for example, where people are just like cutting and pasting phone numbers and saying, like, call these senators, call these people and oppose this, speak out against this. Um, people are really smart and they, they have a lot of the tools that they need to organize. So I'm hoping that, you know, we can, we can play a small part in that process in terms of saying like, Hey, here are some important issues to think about. And, you know, here, here's the context for where this fight is going and let's figure out how to work together. So has there been any opposition to the campaign? I don't think so, but I don't know. (laughs) I don't know for sure. Um, I think... You know, over the last year or so, um, Free Press has been much more vocal and upfront about our own commitments to things like, you know, racial equity. Um, And I think there have been people who, you know, have been in our midst that that's maybe, you know, that's not their thing. They're opposed to that or they... They call us out um, for not really focusing on things like net neutrality um, and and talking about things like race. But, you know, these things are all interconnected. Um, So we do occasionally see things like that. But on the whole, um, it's actually been really fantastic. And we've had a lot of new people coming in um, through this campaign, which has been really exciting um, to see as well. And how can our listeners join this campaign? Um, You can go to Free Press's website, which is uh, freepress.net, and you'll find a link right there on the homepage to sign up. It's called The 100 Days of Disruption. And Candice, is there anything else that you would like to add um, about Free Press or the Open Internet or the, the 100 Days of Disruption? I guess I would just add that in this moment, <clears throat> as we're moving towards, um, as we move through the first 100 days of the Trump administration and sort of move past it and beyond it, um, We at Free Press are going to remain very vigilant in protecting the open Internet um, and fighting for net neutrality. And, you know, we got we saw four million people over one million people speak out um, against the attacks on the open Internet the last time this came around. And we were able to win a really great victory um, when the Federal Communications Commission uh, voted to put permanent net neutrality protections in place. Um, we know that that's going to come under attack. Uh, that's definitely something that we're going to see in the coming days. So um, we will be doing everything that we can to fight back against that. And we really hope uh, folks will join us and that we can bring another 4 million people into that process this time around. Great. Thank you so much, Candice, for joining us. Um, I really appreciate the work of Free Press and um, this particular campaign we will be keeping a close eye on. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. For Generation Justice, I'm Kateri Zuni. A special thank you to Candice Clement and Craig Aaron for your emphasis on racial equity and intersectionality. The Free Press 100 Days of Disruption continues. For more updates and ways to get involved, visit freepress.net. 
The work that Free Press does is so important because the new administration is working to undo great strides in people's access to freely communicate and connect. For example, the new FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, released items that wouldn't allow the modernization of the Lifeline Fund, which supports a broadband internet access for low-income families. In New Mexico, one in five people live at or below the poverty line. Regulations like this will limit New Mexican families' access to the internet. Now, a song that reminds us that we are all here for each other, one that you can catch on freepress.net. Here's Rachel Platten with Stand By You. Your empty hands in mine And scars Show me all the scars you hide And hey If your wings are broken Please take mine till yours can open too Cause I'm gonna stand by you The past two weeks have been filled with joy, grief, fear, and everything in between. But there's also been a few uplifting moments along the way that have helped keep us hopeful. One of those moments came this past week when the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, stepped in and helped put a stay on the ban of Muslim people flying into the United States. Peter Simonson is the executive director for the ACLU of New Mexico. Under Simonson's leadership, ACLU New Mexico has fought and upheld marriage equality, reproductive rights, and has challenged the state's right to civil asset forfeiture. GJ Senior Fellow Christina Rodriguez had the opportunity to sit down and speak with Peter about several recent executive orders signed by President Trump, most notably the travel ban on seven Muslim-populated countries. Here's Christina with Peter Simonson. This is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice, and today I'm here with Peter Simonson, Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico. Peter has led the New Mexico ACLU since 2000, and we are very happy to have him here with us today in the studio, especially at this crucial moment in our history. Welcome to Generation Justice, Peter. Glad to be here. Will you share with us some of the mission and the vision of the ACLU? Sure. Well, the organization is nearly 100 years old, and we are probably the most active and largest civil rights organization in the country right now. We've been in the state of New Mexico since 1962, and the mission of the organization, you know, officially is to protect and advance our rights under the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. But I think really what that means is ensuring that the guarantees and the promises of the Bill of Rights, those key values that we have around freedom of speech, protection against um, discrimination, uh, protections for privacy, so on and so forth, that those cover everyone in our country, regardless of someone's wealth or political power. What has it been like for these past two weeks working at the NMACLU? Yeah, it's been chaotic. It's been just about as crazy as we expected it would be. You know, I think we all held out hope that the Trump administration would not be as aggressive or as dismissive of basic constitutional rights as we had all assumed based on the promises that he made on the campaign trail. We probably got our first hint that it was going to be pretty bad uh, when he made his inaugural speech. And he presented what was a pretty bleak, a pretty desolate vision for what he thinks America should become. And maybe most importantly, 
he mentioned the words freedom or liberty or democracy, made reference to those actually only once in the entire speech. And, you know, for those of us that maybe don't always listen to inaugural speeches, that's not such a big deal. But if you compare them to the inaugural speeches of past presidents and presidents of all political stripe, for example, George Bush in his first term, it was starkly different from what we heard from those other presidents who make a point of reiterating the promise that this country represents in the way of freedom and liberty and democracy and that we are a beacon of liberty to the rest of the world. Certainly, there are plenty of political agendas that are behind that vision. But at the end of the day, our presidents traditionally have strongly acknowledged our rooting as a country in those key precepts. And today's president made very little mention, if any, of them. And I think that's pretty indicative of where we seem to be headed today, which is toward a situation in which the executive branch is openly dismissive of and basically disinterested in our basic constitutional rights. So what are some of the top priorities that the NMACLU is looking at right now? A lot of the focus right now is on protecting immigrant communities against the discriminatory and xenophobic policies of this administration. Certainly, uh, undocumented immigrants and their families, particularly Latino immigrants being the most highly targeted, are foremost among those. We're concerned about raids. We're concerned about local law enforcement being induced to enforce immigration law. But I would also say our Muslim and Arab-speaking communities are equally important in this time, and um, we are doing what we can to try and put some pieces in place to ensure protections for that part of our community as well. We will be soon entering a time where the assaults on the LGBT community start to take root. I expect that we will begin to see executive orders and policies that are championing religious freedom over the protections that the LGBT community, same-sex couples, and women enjoy, in the case of women, their ability to access reproductive health care. And so, you know, the fight is going to be constantly shifting terrain, and we're going to have to respond as we can. Right now, things are coming down from the federal level. We're hearing about these executive orders. People are mobilizing en masse in such a wonderful way. But ultimately, these policies are going to start to trickle down to New Mexico, and they're going to be implemented in New Mexico. And that's going to create yet another wave of challenges uh, to our communities. And that's really where I think the rubber is going to meet the road for us here in New Mexico. And we can certainly talk more about what that's going to look like. I was going to ask you about the Milo Yiannopoulos event on mm -hmm. campus, because I was reading about the ACLU's position about hate speech on campus. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering some of your thoughts. You know, I just want to state categorically that the ACLU denounces his viewpoints. I think they're repugnant. I think they are damaging to our society in the final analysis. I think they marginalize uh, communities that are already being attacked. But at the end of the day, we have to have an even playing field for speech in a way that does not give strength to forces in our society and our political structure that would take advantage of that and ultimately eliminate the speech that is actually important and does promote fairness and does promote justice. We have always been an opponent of hate speech laws. We don't have them in this country because they are a violation of our First Amendment rights. 
we've seen the example from other countries abroad of how when you allow for government to begin to pick and choose what speech is acceptable, that at the end of the day, frequently, it's the speech that supports racial justice, it supports equality, it supports protections of privacy and and other key liberties to be eliminated. So, you know, I know it's a hard position to take. It's hard to listen to that stuff. It makes me angry. It makes all of ACLU membership and staff angry. I guarantee you that. I think one place where the ACLU can do a better job is that even while we are protecting free speech, also simultaneously denouncing uh, the speech that is corrosive to those um, basic values of of equal justice, of of fairness, of, of privacy and such, we want the community to know that, um, yes, we protect this this basic uh, principle of our Constitution, but we are not going to stand on the sidelines when somebody is spewing hate like that and also not counter it with more virtuous speech. So in the future, if those kind of speakers come and want that protection of the First Amendment and free speech, how does the ACLU handle something like that? Yeah, I mean, that really is the approach. You know, we, again, will stand by the the basic First Amendment protections that a group like that has. And let's keep in mind that they don't just come to the campus. There's someone on campus, another organization that invites them to come. And so that means that there is a group of folks, minority group probably, who somehow adhere to those beliefs We have a constitution that doesn't protect the interests of the majority. It protects the interests of the minority. That is the purpose of our constitution and the Bill of Rights is to ensure that minority beliefs and thoughts and ways of practicing their religious faith or for racial or ethnic reasons are protected, that they're not extinguished by the majority. I think we need to do a better job of paying attention to when that happens and to voicing our opinions about the kind of speech because we do have an interest in the general public discourse around race and ethnicity in our communities, and we need to be pushing back at that level. And that's where I think the battle should be, is in pushing out better speech to counter uh, those negative attitudes. And how do racial equity principles like structural racism or institutional racism fit into the work of the ACLU, especially right now? On a number of levels, I would say that we are becoming an increasingly equitable and inclusive organization. We're taking measures with board and staff to not just become internally a diverse organization, but also to think about ways in which the big decisions that we make for the organization take racial justice into consideration. Frankly, the crisis in our criminal justice system is probably the biggest racial justice battle our country is facing right now. Folks have probably heard the the numbers of how many people of color, and particularly young African-American men, are in our federal and state prison systems. So that's really one of our priorities, is to begin to downsize our prison populations, move people out, and begin to reduce the number of senseless crimes that we have on our books. Right now, we have a major campaign statewide in collaboration with 24 other organizations in pushing back on this tough-on-crime rhetoric that just dominates our legislative session every year. And the governor has taken such advantage of that, proposing the resurrection of the death penalty strengthening our three strikes laws. This campaign, New Mexico Safe, what it seeks to do is it seeks to grade every single public safety and crime bill according to whether it's truly proven to improve public safety in our community 
whether it's actually fiscally responsible, whether it is simply politically motivated. And I think that is getting some traction inside the legislature. I think for the first time, the legislature is actually asking critical questions about these criminal bills in a way that I'm hoping will begin to restore some sense, some rational thought to our criminal justice system. So that's just an example. Where do you think New Mexico is vulnerable on a federal level? I think we have a lot of state and local police out there in our communities around the state, probably more so in the southern part of the state, who are ready and willing to become surrogate immigration officials. And I think when this administration begins to put together a program for formally promoting collaborations between state and local law enforcement and ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or Customs and Border Protection, CBP, Border Patrol, we're going to see a a lot more of that activity happening. I think we're going to see agencies snapping at that opportunity like trout to a fish line. And that's where we are really vulnerable in this state, in my opinion, because that could start to spread throughout the state quickly. And we are going to have to be as responsive as possible It's our hope that working with our immigration partners, our immigration allies, uh, immigrant allies, that we'll be able to find a case or find cases that would allow us to bring that to the attention of our state courts in particular. You know, the border wall, as offensive as that concept is to any well-meaning individual in our country, the notion that we would create this vast monstrosity of an obstruction between one nation and another, and the message it sends both about our fear and uncertainty as a nation and our disregard for people of other nations. I don't know how much we're going to be able to do to stop a border wall. There will be places where I think there will be opportunities to stop it in the courts, you know, for example, where it conflicts with maybe environmental laws or conflicts with lands with tribal sovereignty. But I think we're very vulnerable there. Those are the key things that, that occur to me. I know that New Mexico ACLU has listed digital privacy protection as a key issue as well. Are there ways that the New Mexico ACLU is pledged to push back against aggressive surveillance? Certainly the national organization is very active on this front. We have tried to do what we can. Right now we have a piece of legislation in the legislature that uh, got some traction in the last session that would require state and local law enforcement to have a warrant to try to obtain any digital information that somebody has, whether on a cell phone or a server or what have you. So we're making a key effort in that regard. But I can't say that we have a broader campaign that's trying to support this area, not that it's not important because it certainly is. A lot of these surveillance programs are determined at the federal level, and so for us to have an impact here locally sometimes is difficult to do, but this is one particular area where we found a piece of the pie that we can try and cut out. So that's primarily what we're doing in that regard. That may change in the coming year or years. This administration, as it implements a lot of the original campaign promises, there are folks who are now being appointed to cabinet positions and sub-appointments and such that I think have an agenda of, of expanding the surveillance regime in our country. And so that could well become a more priority item for us, even at the state level. So what are our next steps looking forward? Well, our next steps are, I think we are really going to have to hang tough here in New Mexico. We need to really free up the communication between our communities, particularly communities that are going to be targeted and attacked by this administration and the organizations that can try and help. We need to find ways to ensure that when raids are taking place, for example, in Santa Fe or Albuquerque, that organizations like ours become alerted just as quickly as possible. 
I think that the citizens of New Mexico have currently and will for the foreseeable future have a big role to play in this fight. We've seen just a massive outpouring of demonstrations and protests. That's going to have to continue. But at some point, I think we as both a state and as a country are going to have to lift our sights above just the level of resisting. I think we need to be forging a new vision for where this country should be going, not just what we don't want it to become. And I think we need to be exporting that vision, broadcasting it in a way that invites some communities that maybe aren't traditionally in our circles to participate. I think there is a large group of people that voted for Trump because they saw him simply as a candidate for change, that he was going to blow up Washington and remake it in a new vision that hopefully would have some impact on their lives. And frankly, a lot of us can understand that because many of us may have voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries for a very similar reason, obviously with different outcomes. But we need to be attracting those folks and we need to be mobilizing. We can't get sucked into the rhetoric of divisiveness. It's very attractive right now to lash out at the folks that voted for Trump. But we have to move beyond that now. We need to be thinking about how we bring people together, how we unite, and how we put together a coalition, a movement that can make sure that our country is headed in the right direction. As worrisome as these times are, there are a lot of variables in play, and we are going to have our opportunities. I'm absolutely sure of it. So we can't be downtrodden by the depressing developments of the day. We need to keep our sights set on a much more ambitious vision for what our country can become. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Peter. It's a really crucial moment in history for all of us, and I'm honored to be able to talk with you about it. Oh, yeah, thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here, and I hope that it's just the first of many. We'll be talking with you again soon. Okay, great. Uh, this is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice. Thank you, Peter Simonson, for explaining where our communities are the most vulnerable and for encouraging all of us to continue to resist. Thank you for your emphasis on the value of our Constitution. In this world of legislation, elected representatives often disregard the values that our nation was founded upon. Now, in celebration of these values, here's the song Freedom Time by Lauren Hill. And a quick reminder, you can find all of these songs from this evening on KUNM's playlist by going to KUNM.org and clicking music. Let's see what key I want to do today. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Everybody knows that they lied. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Resting on their conscience, eating their inside. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. So much has happened in the last two weeks with the new administration. It's important to stay aware and vigilant. And here at GJ, we like to find every way to feel empowered. We know resistance works. So we're bringing you what we're calling the Resistance Roundup. This list comes courtesy of Keizu Haga. This roundup is going to be fast because there's so much resistance that's happened in the past two weeks. Here we go. In the first week, we witnessed one of the largest one-day protests in the history of the country, the Women's March. Greenpeace hung a resist banner on a crane behind the White House. 
rogue Twitter accounts for the National Park Service, NASA, the EPA, CDC, FDA, and dozens of others were created. The Toho Odom Nation made it clear they will not allow a wall through their reservation. Scientists began planning a march on D.C. During week two of the resistance, people flocked to airports around the country in the thousands to protest the Muslim ban. Lawyers from the ACLU stepped in with an emergency action to release the people who had been detained at airports illegally. A New York district judge placed a stay on the ban the very same day. Hashtag delete Uber trends to number one in the country, and the CEO withdraws from his advisement position at the Trump administration as a direct result of this resistance. 2,000 people gathered to form a human chain to protect Muslims during the Texas Muslim Day. Madeleine Albright says that she would gladly register as Muslim, if the registry becomes real. A rabbi in Texas handed over the keys to his synagogue to the imam of the mosque that was burned down. One million dollars was raised in 48 hours to rebuild that mosque. The Seattle Times reported that the city's Affordable Housing, Neighborhoods and Finance Committee voted Wednesday to pull $3 billion in city funds from Wells Fargo Bank, one of the companies subsidizing the Dakota Access Pipeline's construction. Thousands of Google employees walked out in protest to the Muslim ban. The mayor of Berlin, Germany, is speaking out against the wall. University of Michigan is refusing to release the immigration status of its, of its students. The administration had to backtrack on deleting the climate change page from the EPA's website due to pressure. Do not ever believe that resistance does not work. Here is proof, and there is so much more. Thank you to Free Press and the ACLU for your leadership in this resistance. Thank you to all of the individuals, organizations, and groups who have not given up hope. We haven't either, and we'll keep sharing everything that's working with all of you. We've come to the end of another great show. We would like to thank our guests, Peter Simonson from the ACLU NM, as well as Craig Aaron and Candice Clement from Free Press. Production assistance came from Lucero Velasquez, Kateri Zuni, Christina Rodriguez, Alicia Hernandez, Matthew Brown, and Roberta Rael. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate. We're also active on social media. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice was funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Konalma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Polly Dineclaw. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, woke folk, and remember, tomorrow's another day, and you are loved. Yo, Chris, what you doing out of school? Yo, man, they just suspended me, McBoo. Word, they suspended the teacher? Yeah, man, I'm getting so sick of this, man. They teaching us about nothing, man. You know what the bottom line is for black people out here? It's quite simple. You must learn.